This month, we'll be talking about the cartoon characters we all grew up with. Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck. No, 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 Greg, we can't oh. use their actual names. Look, the studio gave us a list of what we can use. Are you serious? We're already being sued by Ron Howard for last month's intro. We don't need Jack Warner coming after us. <sighs> this month, we'll be talking about the cartoon characters we all grew up with. Father's Bunny, Doofy Donk, The Flint Rocks, Rochester and Bullwinkle, Monkey Moose, Birdman. Oh, can I, can I use Birdman? Are you trying to say Batman? No, Birdman was a show. No, probably not. Rwandan Devil, Really Fast Mexican Mouse, and Thomas and Jeremy. All that and more on this month's episode of Alley Meekly. No, 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 no. Alley Weekly. Isn't that a villain in uh, Superman? No, I don't think so. Zazu Zaza? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, that's yeah, him. That's him. Mm-hmm. With that, we welcome all of you to episode nine. Nine, nine I want to say. Nine and a half? Yeah, no, this, this is, isn't a half one. The last one was a half one. This is a full one. Yeah. Yeah, sure. It was only an hour and a half last time. We're going to go the full three this month. <laughs> so this is, as you might recall, from last month's installment. This is Daniel. This is Greg. Hey, Greg. Hi, Daniel. How are you? Which one am I? Who cares? Do you think people wonder which one's which? No. Yeah, because they all know us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Do I wonder which one my mom thinks I am? No, I don't wonder. <laughs> I'd know that voice anywhere. <laughs> I'm Greg. <laughs> yeah, I'm Craig. Uh, this month we're going to be talking about what's known as the golden age of animation, which happened um, mostly, almost solely, in Los Angeles. Not just that. We're going to mostly talk about the Golden Age, but a little bit what happened before that, and mm-hmm. then a little bit what happened after that. We're the cam- Bronze Age, the Gilded Age of animation. <laughs> we're going to sandwich it. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to sandwich it. Cartoon sandwich. So hungry. Yeah. Yeah. Cartoon sandwich. Mm-hmm. Food. <laughs> I like it. Who I feel like I'm going to chase a sandwich around the room, and it's going to get the better of me several <laughs> times for about like five to six minutes. I've been hallucinating you as a big ham hock this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> Well, just a little preamble. Cartoons, like you said, Mm -hmm. the golden age happened in L.A., but cartoons weren't invented in L.A., but everything that we know to be a cartoon and all of the most popular characters of all time, it all happened in L.A., with like three exceptions, but they're done, so. (laughs) Yeah, it's all coming from New York with the Fleischers, right? Yeah, it all came from them. They made everything. Well, they popularized cartoons. I mean, they were were the ones that put out uh, not only like silly stuff that was all rubber hosey, like uh, Betty Boop, and Bosco and Bimbo, but they also did adventure stuff like Popeye was Fleischer. We Bosco. Oh, we did, oh, we Bosco. did Bosco. Bosco. Oh, that's right. No, it's just Bimbo. That's right. Yeah. It's just they can Bimbo. have their Bimbos. They also did the really beautiful Superman cartoon, which I like really love. With uh, Henry Cavill. Yeah, they did that one. <laughs> they did the one Brandon Roth. You didn't know that? <laughs> they, they were the ones, the masterminds behind that one. Go farther back then. If it's not the Fleischers, which is I think is the beginning of animation, where does it all start? Well... The Fleischers. <laughs> so cartoons have been around for pretty much about as long as film has been around. Mm-hmm. So the earliest known cartoon, it was a little French short called Phantasmagorie by Emile Cole in 1908. Who's in it, Bugs? Yeah, it was starring Phantasma Bugs. <laughs> so stuff was being done in Europe mm-hmm. like this, but the early center of the American animation industry was New York City right. up until the early 30s. 
So Europe, they were still the leader in animation up until World War One hit, mm-hmm. and then for some reason they couldn't find time to produce a lot of cartoons during World War One. Can't this, put it together. Why? It doesn't make. They couldn't put their economies back together either. Not funny. So by the time World War One was over, the U.S. became the clear leader in animation because Europe just couldn't do anything. A similar thing happened during World War Two, when pretty much the only cartoons being produced for the whole world were being made in America, which explains why American cartoons pretty much dominated the world until like Dragon Ball Z came out. <laughs> Let's talk about that, can we? So the main guys working in New York were Otto Mesmer mm-hmm. or Mesmer. He released his cartoons through Paramount, which is L.A., yeah. but he was doing it in, L- in uh, New York. His biggest was Felix the Cat in 1919. Oh, that's right. yeah. It was the first cartoon to be successfully merchandised. Okay, yeah, that's, that's true. He's selling Chevy or Ford over and uh, off the 110 freeway. He's hit hard times. He's a used car salesman. He does have a bag of tricks. He can do whatever he wants. <laughs> He's Felix. He is Felix, and he sells all the cars to USC. <laughs> then there was Max Fleischer. Mm-hmm. He had Fleischer Studios. They also released through Paramount, but they were doing it in New York. New York yeah. His biggest thing was uh, Betty Boop, yeah. who made her debut in 1930 in Dizzy Dishes. Originally, I'll say it. I've been saying it for the past you month. Have. She was part dog. What when part? She- <laughs> like a, like a <laughs> centaur? lady part. <laughs> she was a dog, and we can all stop being attracted to her now. They did the animated version of Popeye in 1933. Mm-hmm. He was a comic strip before. A lot of the early cartoons, they were just animated versions of newspaper comic yeah, strips. Yeah, and not only that, but also like guys who worked on some. I'm sure you're going to bring up... Uh, you bring them up and I'll talk about it. Are we talking about Jesus? Yeah, because, we're talking about our Lord and Savior. Because I got a little book you might want to read. <laughs> when I say little, I mean it's impossibly long. <laughs> it protects me from bullets. <laughs> The third guy there was Paul Terry. Okay. He did Terry Tunes, mm-hmm. which were released through 20th Century Fox. So everything was, LA was commissioning it. They were the Medicis, but <laughs> everything was being done in New York. And Terry Tunes was responsible for Mighty Mouse, which is a really yeah, good Yeah, they, they started in 1930. Mighty Mouse was, he came later, but that was their biggest hit. I always like that. Hit. That's I like that Like almost every successful cartoon store animation studio has one like mascot to hide behind yeah, yeah. except warner brothers where everything is a everything mascot. was a hit <laughs> you know like beans the cat i don't even know if that was warner brothers an influential early cartoon in america was gertie the dinosaur mm-hmm. by windsor mckay in 1914 he was uh, doing little nemo and slumberland which is a great comic and produced in new york that was a uh, re- uh, comic strip it was a he sunday was a comedian com- yeah, it was a comedian. The first it was a comedian, comedian strip. It was like a full page Sunday thing that was in like, I think it was done in color. Every strip starts with him falling asleep and he has his like wonderful adventure. And <laughs> it, the, it, the last panel always involves him waking up, like falling out of bed or someone shakes him awake. It's it's really good. But he was responsible for uh, Grady the Dinosaur. Grady the Dinosaur. He also did a cartoon called How a Mosquito Operates, which showed like how a mosquito oh, really? operates. Really? But it, I like that because both of those things are referenced in Jurassic Park in the... Uh, <laughs> in the Welcome Center video. These were the founding fathers of American animation, Mm -hmm. and they set the stage, but it really took off when L.A. got involved. So we'll start with the guy who got things going. A lot of people in L.A. might not know about him. Walt Disney. (laughs) Around this time, he was stationed in Kansas City. He was doing laughograms. That was his thing. He was doing these cartoons, Mm -hmm. but they were failing but quick. (laughs) They were not doing well. They were very like, uh, it was like watching an animated Charlie Chaplin, (laughs) which I love. Yeah. His brother Roy was already living in L.A. because he had tuberculosis and the air in L.A. was good to oh, him. Boy. Like, like uh, Kinney. Like Albert Kinney. Kinney. Like, 
So after the laughograms officially failed, Roy convinced Walt to move to L.A., which he did, I think, in 1922. Okay. When Walt came to L.A., he was done with cartoons. So he came here. He wanted to be a studio film director. He didn't want to do cartoons at all, but he quickly realized that nobody wanted him. So he decided to just do cartoons again. So he was staying in his uncle's house at 4406 Kingswell Avenue in Los Feliz, and he was drawing cartoons in the garage. So he started making a little bit of money, so he and his brother moved their business. His brother was doing stuff with him. They moved it to 4651 Kingswell into a room in the back of a realty office, and they called themselves the Disney Brothers. Oh, cute. They were more than brothers. <laughs> Let me tell you. They rented out an empty lot on the corner of Hollywood and Rodney Drive, which is right next to that big Goodwill that's there in the... Oh, yeah. The uh, umami burger yeah. is over there where you it's, saw Paul F. Tompkins. I saw Paul F. Tompkins. Also, uh, in high school, I got my hoodie token. Token. In high school, I got my hoodie uh, taken from me. <laughs> I got my hoodie token from me. By Roy Disney. <laughs> Give me that. It, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, Paul F. Tompkins gets the, the lead story, not me losing a hoodie at Goodwill. And they're like, oh, we never heard of a hoodie that you left here. But you sold the, my sweater. It's on the shelf. It's on the shelf. <laughs> you got to buy it back for three fifty. <laughs> no, it's a hot day. Well... So they used this area to film live action. These things that were live action and animated shorts, they were called the Alice comedy. So it was like a little girl. It was like kind of like vaguely Alice in Wonderland where it was a real girl in a cartoon world. Mm. So they continued to grow even larger and they moved their office next door to 4649 Kingswell. And then on July 6, 1925, they bought a plot of land at 2719 Hyperion Avenue, which is now a Gelson's it right is. by Gross. Is drinks. it the Gelson's? I knew it was in that square right there. It's the Gelson's. It's the Gelson's? It, that whole area, but the Gelson's was part of it. Okay. It, there wasn't a Gelson's there at the time. That's not oh, why he chose it. I thought someone told me that was... Oh, That's no. where Gelson the Bunny came from. <laughs> <laughs> he opened that up to have a real studio, and they changed their name to Walt Disney Studio. I thought they called it Hyperion Avenue Studios. I or heard, Hyperion Pictures. They probably called it both. I heard that. I mean, they had a, they had a what is it called them. today? Hmm? They had a run from the feds. So they called it all kinds of things. Yeah, the wonderful world of Hyperion <laughs> Avenue. <laughs> so the area that this studio covered, it was growing and expanding all the time. Mm-hmm. All of the great early Disney stuff was made here. Snow White. Mm-hmm. The profits of Snow White actually allowed them on August 31st, 1938, to purchase the plot of land at 500 South Buena Vista Street in Burbank, where they officially made their home in 1940, and they're still there today. Yeah, which is why, for a while, it was called Buena Vista Pictures. <laughs> it was called that. Was it really? Yeah. God, if they... you watch old cartoons, it'll, like, Buena Vista was a thing, and when I get off the freeway, I'm like, like the cartoons. <laughs> yeah, Greg, you're a smart kid. You saw one thing, and you saw it somewhere else, and you related <laughs> the two. But this time, I was right. A quick note on Snow White. Yes. It took three years to make it. And it was the first feature cartoon to have both color and synchronized sound. Okay. So people were skeptical of it. It was referred to as Disney's folly. I feel like there's a lot of follies. We talk somebody's folly. Like this is our folly. This This is our folly. Clearly. It was so much so looked down upon that even Disney's wife would put him down for making it. Wow. And then it was released and became the most financially successful (laughs) movie ever made at that point. It made four times the amount of like the most popular movie that year. Was it 37? Uh, 37, so what would that have been? Um, Lord of the Rings, I think? Dude, where's my car? <laughs> I'm pretty sure. But he was doing, I mean, 28 is when he did Steamboat Willie. That was like the first time animation and sound were synchronized. Yeah, and he well, like, I'll get to that. Oh, you're going you're yeah. to go backtrack. I'm going back. There's going to be a lot of backtracking. Because this is a really complicated, like the web of like what branched off from what. Yeah. It's really, I tried to, I think what we have here is like the most cohesive uh, history of the animation studios uh, ever. Following, you can quote me on that. Uh, following along, it's hard to, to follow because 
studios change hands and you're also following animators yeah. and studios and their it's products. It's confusing. You yeah. know, this might, I think Hollywood's a pretty crazy town. <laughs> But this just confirmed it. <laughs> During Snow White, he had promised the animators uh, that he was going to uh, pay bonuses upon completion of Snow White, and he was going to there's going to be pay raises and all this stuff. He made a lot of promises because he wanted to get it done. It took, like you said, three years to get it done, and they paid off. Like I said, four times the amount of the. Uh, the most successful movie quickly followed by laying everybody off <laughs> he reduced the staff from like 1200 to around 694 and he wanted to get he just wanted a clean house he wanted to get rid of the, I bet he specified that number <laughs> he wanted to get rid of the what he called the chip on the shoulder boys and the world owes me a living lads like he was just <laughs> getting rid of everybody yeah, poor people <laughs> poor, poor people so yeah he just cleaned house and they had a in 1941 they had a strike while they were doing dumbo and uh <laughs> The people striking had signs with, like, Pluto holding a bone. Like, we have a bone to pick with Disney and stuff like that. <laughs> like, a lot of people say it's like a... I don't know if it's like a loss of innocence, but Disney really didn't trust those people that walked away. And he was very, uh... I don't want to say angry, because you don't want to think of Disney as being an angry person. No, no I don't. <laughs> but uh, it, it definitely rubbed him the wrong way. For it to settle, he had to leave town and then let the heads of the of the um, animation studios kind of work it out with all the laborers. He went into cryogenic freezing exactly. hibernation for a few years. <laughs> but it wasn't just about money, too. It was about, like, creative restrictions because he was such a, a daddy on all the on the productions, on all the shorts and everything with Mickey. He, he really stifled creativity. I think Chuck Jones said, like, work was slowing down, I think, at, at Warner Brothers, so he was looking for work other places. And he knew Walt a little bit so he um he's like you know can i come aboard and walt's like sure but you know you know that i'm boss so what chuck jones said was sign this document <laughs> saying that you know that i'm your daddy <laughs> chuck would say like you know i'd work i put my best foot forward but it was it, all we most of us were just waiting we we're waiting for walt to give us approval so you know he he decided he didn't want to be there and walt's like well i'll, I'll give you what position do you want and he's like well i want your position and then walt said walt's filled <laughs> So Chuck Jones went back to Warner Brothers. How does this sound? Chuck Jones Studios. <laughs> Mickey Mouse by Chuck Jones. The wonderful world of Chuck Jones. <laughs> it really split the animation world. And from that Disney strike came the guys who created UPA. And like they from there really created like the cartoon, the modern cartoon styling where they took like shorthand of cartooning like comic strip cartooning they called it limited animation because it was almost the opposite of what disney was doing where this big lavish storytelling thing here's a bunch of guys who just wanted to do cartooning quick brief graphic arts succinctly as possible let's you go really back to didn't. snow white so there were seven dwarfs <laughs> dopey 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 sleepy angry dopey dopey and mickey <laughs> mickey <laughs> the dwarf <laughs> when they moved to their new place in burbank mm -hmm. burbank studios most of the hyperion buildings were demolished but there were a few that were transported to the new studio that are still on the lot so now we're going to talk about the actual cartoons that okay they did his cartoons if you compare it to everything else are the most uh, movie-like yeah. Meaning they're sentimental and boring. I can't stand them. Yeah, they're the best. <laughs> so Disney was doing these Alice comedies and they were doing fine. Yeah. But in 1927, Universal contracted them. Uh, they contracted Disney. <laughs> poor, poor. <laughs> so they wanted them to create a 26 cartoon series for them. And what Walt and one of his animators, Oob Iwerks, mm -hmm. or Ub? I think it's Oob. Oob. The boob. They came up with the character Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. 
He's very adorable. Yeah, he is cute. So they purposely made him a rabbit, not a cat, because pretty much every other cartoon in this time was a cat. Yeah. And for a while, like everything was a cat. So people have always been obsessed with cats. Oswald made his debut in Poor Papa. And after getting a redesign for the next short, he became a success. Mm -hmm. So then the next year, Disney wanted to renegotiate their contract to get more money because Oswald was becoming really popular. But Universal said no. And Disney found out that they and not he owned the rights to Oswald. So he said, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. And he stopped doing production on Oswald. So then Universal, they took Oswald, and in addition, they took a lot of the animators that were working for Disney, really? and they kept him going. But Disney decided to hedge his bets on a new character he had just come up with, Mickey Mouse. So he made a couple Mickeys, and as he was doing so, sound movies came out. So he decided to make his third Mickey with synchronized sounds, and like you said, on November 18th, 1928, Steamboat Willie came out, and it became the first successful sound cartoon. It is a lot of fun, Steamboat Willie. It is fun. Yeah. Little toots. Like, see that little patootie of his waggling around? He's shaking around? it up and down. The steamboat's moving because he's moving his hands because he's lines on paper. Yeah. They can, whoa, 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 A mouse on paper? Smash it. <laughs> a mouse running a boat? <laughs> I do not think Where'd so. Where'd he get his license? Steamboat Willie, it was not the first sound cartoon. A lot of people think it is. It's just the first one that was done well. Okay. So this date, November 18th, 1928, it's agreed on as the start of the golden age of animation, which lasted until the early 60s. Before 1928, less than 23% of theaters would show cartoons before their feature movie, and after this, pretty much all of them did. Okay. So Disney Disney hedged all his bets on the advent of synchronized sound, and he started his Silly Symphonies series on May 10th, 1929 with Skeleton Dance. Skeleton Dance is good. Still the probably the darkest, the most morbid thing Disney has ever done. Yeah, it's it's kind of out there. It's so much fun, though, but it it's is. It's a lot of it fun. Is, uh, <laughs> if, if you're paying enough attention, you're like, oh, this is kind of... Mean. Scary. Yeah. yeah. They started scary and then uh, Disney got too scared. And so yeah. Let's... You couldn't do it anymore. Let's be cute. Let's be <laughs> cute, guys. So, in these silly symphonies, the sound was the point of the cartoons. Yeah. The movement on the images on screen matched the beats of the music in a really satisfying way. And this sort of production, it became the Disney trademark forever. Yeah. It was this series that showed the world that cartoons could be art. I read somewhere and I totally agree that, you know, if you look at the Fleischer cartoons, they're very surreal and they're, they're, they got animals running around. But they're really testing the limits of animation. It's like it's a brand new medium, so they're seeing what they can get away with. Mm -hmm. And then so Disney, I mean, not so much with Silly Symphonies, but more with his features, kind of like make it story time. They add music, and yeah. they're, they're they're making it more uh, real. They're adding a lot of realism. Like you said, what can we make? Do the, the oogie boogie? Exactly, the, oogie what boogie. <laughs> what can we make? Do, do the, the jitterbug. The jitterbug. <laughs> yeah, what animal? Okay, yeah, we'll get a pig doing a Charleston. There's some some owl or whatever doing the jitterbug. It's fine. It'll be funny. Make a couple bucks. That'll be it. Disney went on to make 75 total silly symphonies from then on, mm -hmm. from then until 1939. The last one they did was The Ugly Duckling, which it was. <laughs> and in 1932, Disney signed a deal with Technicolor, and he made the first color cartoon with flowers and trees. Oh, yeah, and then for one. the next two years, Disney owned the patent on Technicolor, so he was the only person who could make wow. color cartoons. He really knew how to manipulate the American government. <laughs> <laughs> flowers and Trees, it was the first cartoon to win an Oscar in the newly created animated short category. Yeah. Disney went on to win the Oscar in this category every year for the next seven years. But to be fair, most of the competition in the category was from other Disney cartoons. But What's the word? Monopoly? Is that the word? That's a Parker Brothers game. Sorry. 
1940, Disney lost the Oscar for the first time, but that's just because they were busy making Pinocchio and Fantasia. <laughs> but I guess also the strike, had, that was the same yeah. time as the strike, so it probably they crippled lost. them a little bit. I was going to say they lost a lot of people, but no, he threw them away. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they really shouldn't have walked down on Disney like that. <laughs> In 1941, Disney regained the Oscar, and he also made Dumbo. Then the next year, they won the Oscar again and made Bambi. Oh, Around this time, Disney's stranglehold started to loosen up because it was World War II, and 94% of his studio was tied up making propaganda and training and public There's health a lot films. Of that, yeah. The studios that stepped in to fill the void at this time were Warner Brothers, MGM, and UPA. Cartoons, they proved to be an extremely effective propaganda tool. Mm-hmm. The first cartoon used as propaganda was The Sinking of the Lusitania, That's- semicolon, an amazing moving pen picture. It was in 1918 by Windsor McKay again. Yeah. But the World War II cartoons that were being put out, they were really racist. Yeah. And they were really like politically charged. I'm sure it caused a lot of like horrible behavior in kids just... (laughs) pushing their their Chinese neighbors in front of trains. They also, you know, grew up and fought the Vietnam War. That's <laughs> it not certainly that. showed. They're, Look um, at the end of Full Metal Jacket. Though. <laughs> <laughs> They're all singing the Mickey Mouse song. You're absolutely right. There was a lot of, uh, I mean, Chuck Jones. I think what happened, it was Ooh. called Fort Western. I talk a lot about Chuck Jones, but I love Chuck Jones. He did, uh, him and Dr. Seuss and uh, Ted his Geisel, buddy. His, his one of his best buddies. So weird. He had the best like Ray Bradbury and Dr. Seuss were his best friends. It's so neat. Like, you say he has the best friends. I think I have the best friend. It's not me though, is it? Who? They were making private snafu. He got. I guess Chuck Jones got drafted, and they, when you're an animator, you get drafted. They they sent him to a place called uh, Fort Western, which was Sunset and Western. And you just went and you did propaganda film. Like you you dress up in uniform and go do this. And I think Doctor Seuss didn't get drafted because he was much older than he was, but he was just very patriotic. He was a good old American boy. So they made those private snafu cartoons that we were, we were mm. watching. And it's just it was um, cartoons for young men who are gonna who needed to know how di- who are about to die, die for their yeah. country. And they had stuff like um, how to avoid booby traps and how to keep your mouth That's shut. Yeah, and they were, and then the guys from UPA after the strike got work with something called F. Um, let me look this up real quick because I wrote it down. F.W. Murnau, the director of Nosferatu. Yeah, that's the one I'm talking about. First motion picture, you know, FMPU, and they just did propaganda films. And that's, that's really where they cut their teeth, uh, learning new graphic art styles and basically doing propaganda and training films for soldiers. I saw one thing that was a public health one, like, you don't want to get mosquitoes, do you? Then spray cyanide all over the ponds in your neighborhood. <laughs> and it had like a thing of... Uh, I, don't, I think it was like Donald Duck or uh, Dap Matter. It was a duck <laughs> spraying things. How, of, it was Howard the Duck. One, <laughs> you watch a lot of Donald Duck. Like Donald gets drafted. There's a lot of bugs shooting everybody. Like Hitler and Daffy Duck fights everybody. Like there was yeah. a lot of propaganda at the time and a lot of uh, send your scraps here and there. Yeah, to right, my was, dinner dish. <laughs> but speaking of that, in 1944... I mean, it was really effective. 1944, a cartoon called Hellbent for Election. Mm. It was made to persuade people to vote Democrat in the election. It was so successful that both parties agreed never to use animation again. Wow, really? Yeah. I saw that, I think, last night. Chuck Jones did it with the UPA guys. <laughs> and I love the train that looks like uh, FDR. <laughs> is it FDR? It is FDR. I didn't see it. It's ridiculous. I didn't watch any of this. The FDR train, which is a still train, is moving really fast. It's called Win the War Special. And the other one that's going really slow is called the 1929 Defeatist Limited. And, and the whole point of it is, uh, like, one of these trains is going to Washington, but there's only one track. You should Long. have seen the train cartoons going on in Germany at the time. <laughs> Autobahn, the ostrich. I don't know. Okay, let's step back to where the rift happened in the Oswald the Lucky Rabbit okay, incident. So Disney created Oswald for Universal. 
and then split with Universal, but Universal still owned Oswald, like I said, and they wanted to keep cashing in on it. So the guy who owned the rights to Oswald was the head of Universal, Carl Lemley. So in the early days of animation, the big studios didn't have their own departments. They would just buy cartoons from mm. independent, devoted animation studios. So Lemley just contracted a different company to make the Oswald cartoons. Two of the animators he hired to do this were Hugh Harmon and Rudolph Ising, both of whom used to work for Disney. Yeah. So Harmon and Ising saw an opportunity and decided to go straight to Lemley and convince him to buy their cartoons straight from them and cut out the middleman. And Lemley decided this isn't a bad idea. So he fired all of them and opened up his own studio. <laughs> it was funny. it was led by Walter Lance and mm-hmm. it was called Walter Lance Studios. This was in nineteen twenty nine. They took up the mantle of Oswald, the lucky rabbit, and they also went on to create Woody Woodpecker. And uh Andy Panda and Chili Willie too. Yeah, those names that we all know and love. <laughs> I love Chili Willie. I do love Chili Willie. I only know Andy Panda from like a figure that is in some vintage shop that I'm like, I needed to have that thing. <laughs> I need to do a podcast on Their cartoon series, it was called Cartoon Classics. Oh, yeah. T-U-N-E. I get it. Cute. Cartoon Classics, it was just a ripoff of Disney's Silly Symphonies. Right. They all were. They all were. So now Harmon and Ising were out of a job. So they joined up with a man named Fritz Freeling. Mm-hmm. He also worked for Disney and they approached Warner Brothers Studios. And with the help of a producer named Leon Schleisinger, whose voice later became the inspiration for the voice of Daffy Duck. He inspired Daffy uh, He what? was a big inspiration for Daffy Duck. Are you sure Daffy Duck and not Porky Pig? His voice was Daffy Duck. His body was Porky Pig. I think he just really? like, Ruff, yes. Oh, yeah, it makes sense because he's fat. Yeah, his tongue was made out of butter. Warner Brothers agreed to start making cartoons under the stipulation that the focus of them be on synchronized sound, and in doing so, each one had to feature a song from the Warner Brothers catalog as a way of both cutting costs and promoting their music catalog. Right. So in 1930, the very first Looney Tunes, which is another ripoff of Silly it Symphonies, it came out with Sinkin' in the Bathtub, starring Boss. Go, who Bosco. is a Mickey ripoff that actually predates Mickey. And the cartoon itself was also very much like a Mickey cartoon. Mm-hmm. And from then on, they churned out one Looney Tune every month. Okay. And at the very end of this first one, sinking in the bathtub, Bosco walks onto screen. He looks straight at the camera and he says, that's all, folks. Oh, my God. He doesn't say it like that. Wow. I do. How haunting that is. That's <laughs> all, folks. So they liked that, I guess. And they kept that as their catchphrase forever. So as the Looney Tunes became more popular, Warner Brothers introduced a new monthly series called Merry Melodies in 1931. Mm -hmm. So all this was in black and white until 1934. Merry Melodies switched to color, but Looney Tunes stayed black and white until 1943. But all the color ones we see in the 60s, all the old Looney Tunes were sent to Japan to be colorized. But most of the original cells had been burnt by the studio just to make room. So they had to remake all of them all over again and then colorize them. Wow. Yeah. In the beginning, Merry Melodies were all about the music, but Looney Tunes was more story driven. Yeah. But eventually the two names just became inter- interchangeable. Yeah. So these were the days before Warner Brothers were headquartered in Burbank. So the place where all this was happening was at 5800 Sunset Boulevard. Mm-hmm. It's where the Sunset Bronson and the KTLA 5 studios okay, are now. Yeah. yeah, I thought so. Yeah, you were right. I'm sorry. It's between the two Denny's. 
Reginald and uh, <laughs> he's back. The riots are here. Reginald Denny and the other Reginald Denny. So Warner Brothers didn't have as much money to compete with the style and the class of Disney. So they set out to be the funniest cartoons. And they were. And they were. Harmon and Ising eventually left Warner Brothers in 1933 to go to MGM, which we'll get to later. Yeah. So to replace them, Schleisinger hired. See, even his name. That's it is. Daffy Duck. It is Daffy Duck. You're right. Uh, they hired Bob Clampett and Chuck oh, Jones. God. So a little bit about Chuck Jones. I I'm sure you're going to have more to add. Chuck Jones became the driving force of Warner Cartoons. He was raised in Hollywood, Mm -hmm. graduated from Chouinard Art Institute, which used to be at 741 South Grandview near MacArthur Park. But once Disney got a hold of it in 1961, he merged it with the Los Angeles Conservatory of Music, and they formed the California Institute of the Arts in Valencia. CalArts, as you will, as the kids call it. (laughs) Yeah. After graduating, Jones would draw portraits on Olvera Street mm-hmm, for, a dollar for a dollar until he got his first job in 1932 as a cell washer for Oob Eyeworks yeah. over at MGM. We'll get to that also. Cell washers, did you read about what they're... Yeah, they're, yeah. They literally, they would wash the cells. They didn't, They the cells were like four cents each, but to keep the cost down, they would reuse them. So they'd wash them all clean afterwards. Some of the cells that survived are sold for like hundreds of thousands of dollars and they're all down the drain. I would, I would pay that money just to wash one of them. <laughs> I'd pay that money to watch Chuck Jones watch his cell. <laughs> it's a young scrap. Jones created pretty much all the iconic Warner characters. Wile E. Coyote, Roadrunner, Pepe Le Pew, Elmer Fudd, Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck. His team, they went on to create the first real cartoon star in 1935's I Haven't Got a Hat with Porky Pig. And the ones that he didn't create, he sort of raised as his own too. Yeah. Chuck Jones grew up in Hollywood. He was born I in... said that. In Spokane. I said this. Do you know where he lived in no. Hollywood? He lived near La Brea and Sunset, which is really close. He said two blocks away from Chaplin Studios, and he would sneak up to the fence and watch Chaplin rehearse things. That's so cool. So Chaplin would fall down and get back up and fall down again and get back up. And he like he would sneak and, yeah, he'd sneak and watch Chaplin do this over <laughs> and over. He thought he was a clumsy old man. He would watch Mary Pickford like ride by on a, on a white horse because she was part of like the honorary on her way to get a chili burger, chili burger, <laughs> just <laughs> trailing ice cream sundays behind her. Yeah, she was part of some parade, so he just watched like Mary Pickford from his porch, and then he I think they moved back to to Newport Beach, and he's incredibly well read. Like he like reads a lot of he read a lot of he's like he's the biggest fan of like Chaplin and Keaton. He loves those, but uh, on top of that, like he loves Mark Twain. Like he's the biggest Mark Twain fan, and he like he he puts a lot of that into the Looney Tunes, like even. Wiley Coyote is based on a a quote from Twain from Ruffin It about like how a coyote I'll get that roadrunner. <laughs> it's the last thing I do. Have you read it? It's very no. Uh, <laughs> Twain said in in Ruffin It how uh, the coyote is like the manifestation of of hunger, <laughs> and like even if he has to go like 150 miles to get food, he'll do it. And he admires. And they're surprisingly it. resistant to anvils. <laughs> I say, I say. <laughs> Those coyotes will just order product after product after product <laughs> until they Is get that, their did way. Did he come up with Foghorn Leghorn? Because if he likes Mark Twain, <laughs> he would love Foghorn Leghorn. No, he didn't. I think I think Robert Kimson did. We're, what we're talking about right now is like the building of a dream team, basically, which leads to Termite Terrace. It's kind of like the Avengers. Not those ones. <laughs> the ones from Britain, you know, the two spies. <laughs> Call now Brown Cow. So, me- How old are we? Tale as old as time, a song as old as rhyme. Beauty Meekly. and the beauty? <laughs> <laughs> While Chuck Jones was becoming a star, 
Meanwhile, at Walter Lance's studio back at Universal, there was this kid low on the totem pole from Texas named Frederick Bean Avery, a.k.a. Tex Avery, and he got an opportunity to rise up through the ranks after Disney raided the staff at Universal, Mm -hmm. and he was able to rise up and get the experience he needed to apply and get accepted at Warner Brothers in 1936. He made his Warner Brothers debut that year with Gold Diggers of 49. Tex Avery, he had a very surreal style, and he was a complete redefined what a cartoon could be and supposedly Disney didn't want his animators to see any of Avery's stuff because it was too extreme in its humor and animation style extreme is is a I don't want to say it's a light way to put it but it's it's insane his cartoons I remember when I was a kid they used to have a special it was like the Tex Avery hour and I knew like oh this is gonna be good yeah the wolf (laughs) the wolf yeah the The wolf he he had such a defined style that it, like even as a kid I knew like oh this is a Tex Avery cartoon because it's yeah. insane and because not, it says so, so, it says so yeah also they had, yeah they have a song about it I kind of it's capped <laughs> off think, mom I think this is a Tex Avery <laughs> this is in the hour of Tex Avery I hope it's a Tex Avery cartoon <laughs> yeah three o'clock it's Tex Avery hour <laughs> he was irreverent he was modern he was shockingly modern when you watch them now yeah like it's it's weird to think that these were made in the thirties. And it's it's really funny. It's Com- just really funny. like compare it to what Silly Symphonies was doing. Like yeah. in thirteen, in, you can tell that that is old. <laughs> yeah, in nineteen thirty-seven, they did uh, Disney did the Old Mill, which is really slow moving thing that like zooms in and it's really beautiful and it goes from animal to animal and it's about animals living in this old mill and the camera moves and it's really beautiful and it tells a like a kind of frightening story but in the end everything warms up compare that to 37 when freeling and avery are just (laughs) slamming everything against the wall with it i mean avery would say stuff like people like to see things demolished as long as at the end you pick it all back up but they love to see this insane cartoon violence and and that's what he gave us it was the depression Also, in 1936, that same year, a radio voice actor named Mel Blanc joined Warner Brothers to provide the voices for pretty much every character they made, including Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Porky, Tweety, Sylvester, Foghorn, Leghorn, and the Roadrunner, which is weird to give him credit for the Roadrunner. (laughs) He was the first voice actor to have his name in the credits, and these four men were... They're, they're like the Beatles yeah. of animation. Yeah. And that same year, the animation department of Warner Brothers was officially dubbed Termite, Termite Terrace. Terrace. You're, you're forgetting one of the most important pieces was Carl Stalling, who did all the music for them, too. And the music mm-hmm. is just so I, wonderful. I didn't forget him. Termite Terrace, to me, is like dream team stuff. Like They were working on that little lot in these um, hot bungalows. And they were they claimed that... I don't know if they were mistreated or not, but I know that they... Uh, they were the bungalows claimed to be mistreated. The bungalows were mistreated. Schlesinger didn't really give them a lot of attention. Like he was just like, whatever, you guys do whatever you want. So <laughs> Freeling was the head of the department. He was insane just as much as anybody else. Him and Clampett like pretty much created the most insane character to me, anyways, which is early Daffy Duck, <laughs> which is just babbling bipolar madness, and he's just whoa, 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 whoa. like he's just hopping. If you watch like the Great Piggy Bank. What's it called? It's the Great Piggy Bank, Charlie Brown. Yeah, it's the Great Piggy Bank, Charlie Brown. He's just so insane in the beginning. Like, he's waiting for the mail of his Dick Tracy comic to come in. And he's just like, (laughs) like, he's just insane. And I love it. Chuck Jones would always say, like, Bugs was the winner, but Daffy was clearly the loser. So he he was able to get away with more. But that's when Chuck Jones took it over. Before that, he was Insanity's baby being freely clapped. Who? Daffy Duck, because he has that white thing around Mm -hmm. his neck. You didn't know that? No. Everybody confesses to him. Oh, you're right. Boy. Second question, what's a priest? <laughs> Disney was very sentimental about everything, and Termite Terrace was all about humor. They were one of like, the first animations to concentrate just on comedy writing. They were like brainstorming and gag stuff, and they were all very funny. 
timing and angles. They were they were so angles are funny. Angles now are that funny. is funny. You're think I know what you're, you're making fun of me, but angles there there's some angles, angles that are just faces. funny. Uh, angles with dirty spaces. Damn it, I'm not getting it. <laughs> what I heard was that Tex Tex Avery eventually had one eye. Oh yeah, no, that happened like a lot earlier. I think no, that happened. I, I heard it happened in Termite Terrace. They I were throwing it. like paper clips around, and one of them hit him in the, the eye. <laughs> and a lot of critics have come to say that that uh, lends to his lack of perception or depth in his cartoons. They're all flat <laughs> because he only has one eye. <laughs> I don't think so, but whatever. That's why he never made a 3D cartoon. But him and Clampett and Jones, uh, they they really defined that style really early on, and people were like clamoring to copy that here's another thing about them there's like four or five formulas for like looney tunes and merry melodies but they weren't meant for like binge watching like we weren't meant to watch them all at once so like getting sick of them now is not what it was then yeah you'd only see one a month in between uh watching your dad get killed by a nazi and (laughs) watching humphrey bogart (laughs) kiss your girlfriend and that was another thing thank you you know they were on the mgm lot they didn't have a lot of money to do to create the worlds that Walt Disney was because he was already rich from Snow White and everything like that. And he already owned Technicolor and stuff like he owned all the color in the world. But they had to rely on their <laughs> the wits. The whole world was black and white <laughs> for a few years. But they were on the lot with like Bogart and James Cagney. So they, it, their cartoons are also a lot of like attitude too. Bugs is basically just like Groucho Marx. <laughs> like he's just yeah. a Marx brother. Instead of a cigar, he has a carrot. There we go. Wow. wow. And instead of uh, a human, he's a Bunny. bunny. Oh, I get it now. Oh, Bugs Bunny. Bugs Bunny. I get it. Oh, Bugs be Bunny. <laughs> Bugs be Bunny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they were attitude. They were humor. It was. What's up, doctor? I get it. What's up, physician? <laughs> How's it going, surgeon? Yeah, Termite Terrace was really where they. I think where they made their best stuff. And once they got more money and they gave Chuck Jones uh, his way, I think that they started to transform. And they. I don't want to say they were less funny, but they were less insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're less about ins- money makes you sane. If yeah. I've seen Citizen Sane, <laughs> I know that money makes you sane. Yeah, it makes you cane. Yeah. Termite Terrace, they used to do uh, Christmas reels, which was a gag thing every year at Christmas. It was just like a mock uh, documentary sort of thing that they release. And they'd have like Mal Blanc would do the voiceovers for everything. Like, look at how happy they all are going into work and they're all miserable. <laughs> and boy, they don't want to leave early today. They're all running out of the studio. <laughs> but one of the things that really strikes me, other than the humor, and it's all live action and they're starring in their own thing and, and they get Schlesinger to like make fun of himself, which is apparently really hard to do. Um, <laughs> What's to make fun of? He's only a bald, morbidly obese man that looks like a cartoon pig. <laughs> and has uh, way too much power for someone in his position <laughs> who doesn't care about any of the, the output at all. <laughs> they would uh, make fun of the girls who worked in the studio who were like sound washers and they would, they, they would make fun of them. By dressing up as them in the video and pretending that to be this washing cells that were like not used yet. So they would, what I'm getting at is they would all dress up like girls and, and it was not homoerotic. That's the same attitude that goes towards bugs when he dresses up like a girl. Like it's yeah. prankster-ish. Yeah, it's sexy. It's sexy, yeah. I wonder like, where's she from? She's new. Look at that cottontail on her. Look at the way she eats that carrot. So they were as funny as the cartoons they were putting out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another thing about you were saying how women were washing uh, cells or whatever. Yeah. It seemed like like the inking and like the the inking department pretty much. It seemed like they were all women. Like that's the job that like women certainly can't draw cartoons. <laughs> that would be absurd. But all the women were like working in the inking department. Yeah. Disney's uh, Disney Walt Disney's wife was uh, like inker. She oh she, she really? met her in the inking department. Talking about wives, you know that um, Walter Lance's wife did the voice for Woody Woodpecker. 
and she had talking about wives take my wife please <laughs> she auditioned without him knowing and she just submitted her voice yeah, that's right. and then that's he's right. like who is this girl give her to me before my wife finds out also uh you know since we're talking about women and there aren't a lot in this animation world at the time let's do a whole other podcast about women i Ma- think we know a lot I, I want to give a shout out to Mary Blair, who I love a lot, who worked on uh, illustrations for, I think, I know she did Peter Pan illustrations. I don't know if she did animation, but she definitely helped with design and storyboarding and backgrounds, probably. My next question, why don't you marry her? <laughs> <laughs> She's uh, dead. <laughs> I don't see a problem here. You own a shovel? No. Haven't you seen Frankenstein? <laughs> you know, the guy who plays the mighty Wurlitzer in the downtown theater district? In 1940, Avery, back to what was going on at Termite Terrace, Avery made a wild hare, mm-hmm. which defined the character of Bugs Bunny. He had appeared in three earlier cartoons, but this was the one that, like, oh, yeah, that's him. Yeah. This, this is the bunny. He also gave him not only attitude, but he had his phrase, which, you know, we're all crazy about. What's which, up, doctor? What's up, doctor? Which was uh, a phrase in the South that yeah. when they used it, in the cartoon, like people were rolling, laughing, like they couldn't <laughs> believe that this bunny rabbit just said, "What's up, Doc?" Like it was the funniest thing to them, and we take it for granted because it's hackneyed and weird and old, it and I don't weird. get it. And yeah. it's from the South, and nothing from the South is good, no. except for uh, the Yankee South. beans. Yankee, Yankee beans. beans. Those are the, the Confederacy. Good. The South will rise again. So, <laughs> with Bugs Bunny, this it cemented Warner Brothers. Yeah. Everyone said, "Oh yeah, Warner Brothers. They're the funniest. Yeah. These are the funny cartoons." And then gag cartoons became king of everybody yeah even disney which like we said before around this time he was going through some rough times pinocchio was a failure fantasia was a failure he was making all this world war ii stuff he was weird (laughs) even disney started to imitate the style of termite terrace i got a feeling that goofy was trying to be a lot of like term like uh, warner brothers stuff and after a while, maybe like uh, Daffy, oh, not Daffy, God. Donald. Donald. I, I got, you get the feeling get that. For like two hours today, I was having like flashcards of <laughs> Donald and Daffy. But yeah, Donald, uh, you know, becomes, I mean, he, I like Donald's cartoons a lot. Like Donald, Donald's Diary and Donald Gets Drafted. I like those mm-hmm. a lot, but it, it does seem like they're like, oh, we could be funny too. Watch. We're yeah. going to be funny. Yeah. And Mickey, I, I was watching, I was watching a goofy thing mm. and I was thinking, did Warner Brothers do Goofy? <laughs> Mickey cartoons, which I like too, like the, the black and white ones, are, are fun and adventure They're pleasant. They're pleasant. I like them. I like yeah. them a lot. I like they're, the design of Mickey the Mouse in a certain era when he's black and white. Like, uh, what's the one where he's like flying a plane? I forgot. I see that. They're not as memorable to me, but I King like the Kong? design. It's King Kong. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to put down Disney cartoons because I, I like the wonderful world of color when I watched it as a kid. It's easy to put down Disney, but uh, it's hard to put them down. <laughs> They, they were not good at being as funny because they had so much creative restrictions yeah. and they, they weren't as mean-spirited as these uh, horny young men. This was the pinnacle of Warner Brothers. Yeah. So let's step back again and take it back to Disney again. Everything stemmed from Disney to see how the third major animation studio was formed. So MGM, it was located at 10202 Washington Boulevard in Culver City. It's yeah. now Sony Studios. They didn't want to get left out of the animation game, so they approached Disney and they offered to distribute his cartoons, but Disney was already partnered with RKO, actually, yeah. our logo. So they instead approached the former right-hand man of Disney, who had left to start his own company and failed, Oob. It was oh. Oob again. Oob Iwerks. He won't give up. No. He, Good. Oob, he couldn't come up with any characters that stuck out, so he left MGM. Mm-hmm. And after a couple of years, and he went groveling back to Disney. But that was fortunate for us because then to replace him, 
MGM in 1934 went after some more ex-Disney man and he tempted Harmon and Ising away from Warner Brothers and put MGM on the map with their very own Silly Symphonies knockoff, Happy Harmonies. Ah, Okay. So in 1942, Tex Avery got into a fight with Schlesinger at Warner Brothers about he wanted to do a series where it was real, they filmed real animals talking with cartoon mouths. Okay. And for even suggesting this, he got suspended for eight <laughs> weeks from Warner Brothers. <laughs> How does you, Tex Avery, get suspended? He walked into the office. I got this idea. He pitches it, just silence. You're suspended. <laughs> get out of here. You, the creative cartoon <laughs> violence, are suspended. That's how he lost his eye. He threw a paperclip at him. Only thing in arm's reach. So instead of coming back after his suspension, Avery instead sold this idea to Paramount, where it eventually won an Oscar, and then he settled into his new home at MGM. So this started the period of dominance for MGM, where they won the Oscar for Best Cartoon 1943 through 1946. This was when Avery debuted The Wolf. He created his first breakout character in 1943's Dumbhounded with Droopy. Droopy. Yeah. Hang on, Droopy. Droopy. Winning us. <laughs> he also did stuff like Rockabye Bear. When did he do dogs? Um, he loved dogs. He loved dogs. He did Page Miss Glory a lot earlier, but that's a fun thing too. But the Wolf is the Wolf, Red Hot Riding Hood, and Droopy are his three. Like that's his three big ones. Other than like he created, yeah, he created an added attitude to Bugs. But like it's really. Yeah. But no, what's the other one? Screwy Squirrel is another one of his. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Screwy Squirrel is another like another big one. Yeah, that's a lot of good characters. Yeah, but Droopy was the only one that really like. I mean, nobody has like a a wolf doll. Nobody's they have two. <laughs> yeah, we're going to rush to Droopy. <laughs> I want a character my kids can look up to. <laughs> so, you know, something depressed. Something like lethargic. <laughs> those cartoons are really funny, too. Like, there's a lot of those cartoons where, you know, one character is trying to get away from another one. He'll, like, he'll throw him in a cage and throw him underwater. Then he'll take, like, a powerboat to a high, hot air <laughs> balloon. And he'll get on a plane. And they'll go into the Amazon and hide in a cave. And then... But the funny thing about it is, like, the wolf is so extreme in his fright, and Droopy is just so like, ah, I'm here again. Like, it's like the. <laughs> I, I think I, I read him described as Droopy is, like, in a world of exclamation points, Droopy is a semicolon. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> With all these studios doing what they were doing, yeah. this was the pinnacle of animation's golden age. But. After World War II, things slowly started to go downhill. Production Mm -hmm. costs were rising. Tastes were changing. And a new competitor came along, TV. Oh, that's right. You know, television. A lot of people didn't like... Like, I know uh, John Hubley from UPA thought, like, TV was just trash and had no style and couldn't hold... Like, didn't deserve to hold anybody's attention. It didn't have any, like, artistic value. And he obviously never saw, like, the Jetsons, you know? <laughs> UPA was, like, ran during that era. I mean, they ran alongside a lot of, like, uh, Married Melodies. They came out of the... Married Melodies. Married Melodies. <laughs> yeah, UPA was something completely different. Uh, like, Fritz Freeling was saying, like, when I die, I want to go to heaven, I want to go to UPA. Because <laughs> they, it, they, like, set themselves apart because they were so artistic. They had their limited animation thing, which means, like, they concentrated more on sort of character design and making everything look unique the problem with them though and it became their downfall because they ran right into tv because tv hanna-barbera specifically stole their limited animation thing if you watch like the flintstones there isn't a lot of animation there's a lot of like still characters talking they don't need to move around all that much the backgrounds are pretty static if you watch scooby-doo they're all dancing with just a color background with nothing (laughs) specifically although some of the art in like the haunted houses for scooby-doo is beautiful upa is known for like i said all all, uh, cartoon studios have their their rallying mascots this one had Mr. Magoo, 
was based on W.C. Fields, who tried <laughs> to sue them. And they're like, no, 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 Magoo's different because, you know, he, he mutters less and he doesn't mutter less. I still like the idea of him showing up in a courtroom <laughs> waiting, where is this Magoo? <laughs> Show me Magoo. <laughs> <laughs> they had a Magoo, they had Gerald McBoing Boing, which is a really fun cartoon that Dr. Seuss created as, a, I think, like a, a radio record. And then later, as their quality went to, went downhill, although I, I think it's a it's a great cartoon style is a Dick Tracy cartoon that they put out, although incredibly racist. As everything was. As everything has. Yeah, they had a they had a great modern style and they added their like cartooning was from like comic cartooning. Like it was all shorthand illustration and stuff like that. And leading the way with them was uh John Hubley. They had uh three guys from Disney, Zach Schwartz, Dave Hilberman and Steve Bossostow. I always I don't know how to say his name. They also had Bill Melendez on who like later would do uh, Peanuts. He'd do the Peanuts cartoons. <laughs> yeah, Bill Melendez this was really great. And they really challenged like the realistic look of Disney and they infused social commentary and stuff. They had that, that Rudy Toot Toot one, which is uh, it, it's a, like a trial. This woman's killed this guy because she found a different lover. And it's just so unique. It's just so unique. Like There's a lot of colors, the backgrounds all over the place. It's very um, stylized and it's really interesting. Their, their two biggest things with them was that no talking animals. And no cartoon violence. Although Rudy C. Toot has two people dead by the end of it. It's, it's kind of a crime story. <laughs> but they're not animals. They're so not animals. Okay. Yeah, it doesn't matter. So in 42, they hook up with Frank Tashton, who's one of the Termite Terrace guys who helped create one of the, you know, the, the better versions of Daffy Duck and would later go on to... Uh, Donald Duck. <laughs> Donald Duck. He was one of the few guys that moved from animation to live action. He found a perfect segue with Jerry Lewis movies, like early Jerry Lewis movies. He did Hollywood or Bust, and I think he did The Ladies' Man, and Jerry's like animated, as animated as like Daffy Duck is, so he <laughs> found a perfect event for, for all that animated angst. Ooh, animated angst, I like that. So they're at Columbia, and then Tashlin gets a, in a fight with the heads of Columbia. So they do some cartoons together, like the Professor Small and Tall and Fox and the Grapes, but then eventually Tashlin leaves, and I think Hub and someone else goes, Buster Stout goes with them. At that point, they start working with the uh, the military thing, FMPU. So in 43, there were some guys who weren't part of that whole thing. Buster Stout, I think, might have been part of the Tashland-Columbia fiasco. But Hilberman and Zach Schwartz, they formed something called Industrial Film and Poster Service, which is the earliest incarnation of UPA. They were just doing stuff to, like, uh, graphic arts sort of stuff. And they were all really skilled craftsmen, and they, they had, like, a definitive style they wanted to pronounce, so... Working at Disney was going to work for them anyways. So they were just getting into graphic arts. I uh lucky enough to attend this UPA like film festival. And before I even knew what UPA was, I just went because <laughs> I'm a, something with Ward Kimball. I'm like, I have to be there for Ward. I, Ward Kimball is one of the Disney animators who was one of the, the nine old men. Reading about Disney and how he's daddy Disney and everything... <laughs> You kind of get the feeling like, oh, Mary Melodies and all these other studios are about, well, it's particularly about Mary Melodies and Looney Tunes and Termite Terrace. It's about following, like, what animators were creating what characters and that their own spin, like, Clampett's Bugs Bunny was different than Chuck Jones's Bugs Bunny. So you're, you're kind of following animators, and it kind of felt like once you left Disney, you are able to establish yourself as an animator because if you're working at Disney, you don't really get known because of all the silly symphonies and, and the and the uh, Mickey shorts, nobody really stood out as an animator. And then I'm like, okay, well, that's how it is. But then I forgot that Disney has the Nine Old Men, which is nine animators who really made a name for themselves. And they, they worked on some of the best, not only like features, but like a lot of shorts and stuff. Between Snow White to the Rescuers, you had Les Clark, Mitt Call, Mark Davis, Eric Larson, John Lonesbury, Wolfgang Weatherman, and then the three that I really like, uh, Frank Thomas, Ollie Johnston, who became known as Frank and Ollie, like a really good team. Like they, they worked together for a really long time, and 
there's like homages to them in the Incredibles, which is really funny. And then my favorite of all of them is Ward Kimball, who is one of the silliest, weirdest animators. Like he like was a living version of his own cartoons. <laughs> he put a stamp on like Jimmy Cricket. Jimmy the Cricket? Jimmy the Cricket. The Mad Hatter was his. And he kind of like had like the energy of the Mad Hatter <laughs> and everything. Yeah. And he also did the Penguin. What's the Penguin's band name in uh, Mary Poppins? I always forget what they're called. <laughs> Dick Van Dyke. Dick Van Dyke. Yeah, and then Frank Thomas uh, was known for like doing Captain Hook and the Queen of Hearts. There were just nine animators who really stuck out. But Ward Kimball, my God, Ward Kimball was just so much fun. And he was like, played trumpet. Him and Walt Disney were like, really good friends. And Ward Kimball was on the Groucho Marx. What was that Groucho Marx show where he asked you a bunch of questions? You Bet Your Life? I think it was You Bet Your Life. And Ward Kimball and his wife came on. He's just really funny and kooky and looks old from like a really young age, but really <laughs> old and kind of goofy. That's definitely like the energy that I like to think about when I think about good Disney is... That kind of Mad Hatter, Ward Kimball energy. That's all. Anyways, Ward Kimball was part of this. I ended up at the UPA thing. Mr. Magoo cartoons are really funny. They're not like my favorite. <laughs> yeah, the whole concept of he's nearsighted. He has no idea what's happening. He always has some vague idea of what's actually going on. <laughs> but you're, you're watching like the what everyone else sees in Mr. Magoo. It's really funny. And Gerald McBoing is just charming. It's very Dr. Seuss. Not style-wise. It looks like a comic strip you'd see in like the 40s or 50s. Everything's really simplistic. But it, it has a rhythm. And the uh, Seuss. Oh, a Seuss, and it has also the like the outcome of a typical Seuss thing, which is usually very cheerful and triumphant, like uh, Horton hears. A what? Horton hatches the egg is the one I was thinking of. Horton hatches a who? Yeah, Horton hatches a who. They 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 do really well for themselves and everyone. They're it's sort of like the way they say Pet Sounds is uh, every musician's favorite album. Like UPA is basically <laughs> a, a lot of animators' favorite every musician's studio. favorite studio. <laughs> <laughs> what ends up happening? <laughs> is, as you said, TV starts seeping in. Hubbley doesn't like it at all. He doesn't like anything. He thinks that animation for TV is kind of trashy, which it is. <laughs> they flourish in the 50s, but the problem with UPA is that it costs a lot of money to do what they do, and it's also time-consuming because each animator is spending a lot of time with each short, and it's his style, and it's his dream, and it's his vision, and it costs a lot of money. So they start cutting costs. They start doing more Magoo stuff. Gerald and <laughs> Boing Boing and Magoo have a cross. A Christmas cover was a big thing. They made a theatrical feature, A Thousand and One Arabian Nights with Mr. Magoo. They made another one, <laughs> Gabe Puri. They, they, they're just pushing to, to become more commercial, and it kind of falls apart as TV work. because TV takes their limited animation style, and they use it. They don't use it stylistically. They use it as uh, just cutting costs, like a cost-cutting measure because it's easier, and you could just pump it out. We're going to get to the studio that was known for, you know. Pumping big, it out. Pumping <laughs> it out. They were known if they were called, oh, you know what? Let's get to it then. TV dissolved UPA, basically. Yeah. Well, TV kind of dissolved everybody. Yeah. When TV came around, all of the major animators were hit hard. Disney, they stopped doing short. They were stopping. By 1956, they stopped completely, and they focused only on features, live action ones more and more. At that. Yeah. They, they had stuff like... Uh, it was just so expensive. The stuff like Don Knotts stuff or like... What's the other Pollyanna? Uh, the, the Scared Mr. Chicken. What is it? Let's Scare Mr. No. Chicken. What is it? <laughs> Let's Scare Mr. Chicken Not to death. Mr. Limpet. What the hell is the it called? Mr. Limpet. Limpet. What the hell is it called? The, the Ghost and the Chicken is one of them. The, the, the Incredible thing. Mr. Limpet's the well, other I'm one. At, well, that was Termite Terrace. Termite Terrace, uh, they limped on. They finally closed in 1963. The last thing they did, though, was The Incredible Mr. Limpet. Oh, really? That was the last thing they did? Yeah. I didn't know that. I thought it was a Disney thing. Nope. Wow. I should shut my big mouth. That's what I was told. I was told by Termite Terrace. Universal Studio. <laughs> 
<laughs> that is what I meant to say, not Universal Studios. Universal Studio went on until 1972. Mm-hmm. But the biggest thing to happen in terms of the past dying, like the final thing, was when MGM closed its animation department in 1957. Yeah. So while things were still going fine back in 1937, MGM hired a former banker and a former accountant by the names of Bill Hanna and Joe Barbera. Both of them just got into it just because they needed money. They just they just wanted money. Greedy. They teamed up really quickly in their first cartoon together. They made Puss Gets the Boot. Yeah. It was starring a cat named Jasper and a mouse with no name in 1940. And after a little retooling, they renamed the cat Tom and they gave the mouse the name Jerry. And they went on to win seven Oscars together, <laughs> all of them for Tom and Jerry. From reading, like there was nothing spectacular about their friendship. They just kind of worked in the same room. And this slowly started. That sounds familiar. <laughs> they slowly started hating each other. Yeah, slowly. And eventually, one of them robbed the other's house. This is an episode of the Flintstones, isn't it? <laughs> Be honest. Hannah and Barbara, they had a side company named HB Enterprises Mm -hmm. that they started in 1944 just to do some freelance work on the side. One of the things they did was the I Love Lucy opening credits. Oh, yeah, the the, the characters, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, they they created Ethel. (laughs) Ethel was entirely animated. I didn't know that Hannah Barbera did that old, the the one that they never showed on Fox, but it's like the stylized version. Lucy's head and the little dress and Ricky with the pompadour. Yeah, figure bodies. Yeah, yeah. I I see it every once in a while. Yeah, every once in a while. I get excited. I jump up and down. I say, Ma, Pa, get in here. The moving box is moving. (laughs) When MGM shut down in 1957, they went into their side project full time. They saw that the old way of cartoons being viewed in theaters before movies, it was changing and people were now watching them on their TVs at home. The only problem was that everybody was just showing reruns of all the old cartoons from like the 20s and 30s and almost nobody was creating anything new. So they decided to step up. They made a half hour show called Rough and ready and it was okay (laughs) (laughs) but it was still just a half hour compilation of disjointed shorts like everyone else was doing yeah even though they were new they were just sort of it was basically the old thing but in a new box yeah so they tried again and they came out with huckleberry hound in 1958 which was their first complete tv show the next year they officially became hanna-barbera productions and they eventually headquartered at 3400 coenga boulevard which is right across the freeway from universal it's like apartments and some offices now you can still kind of see the sign like what it kind of looked like oh it's i like to see what things kind of look like so the year after that in 1960 they released their biggest hit the Flintstones. It was an homage to the Honeymooners. And it, homage is loose because it, it looks like they just ripped them it off. It was the Honeymooners. It's not as bad as like the, the is it the Honeymeisters? Like it's just, it's like <laughs> really? mice, but it's a, almost exactly <laughs> like Honeymeisters. Honey it was actually an homage to the Honeymeisters. <laughs> it was the first cartoon to be aired in prime time. It was on ABC and it was a huge success. It lasted six seasons in prime time. Mel Blanc, he did the voice of Barney, so he came back. Oh, yeah. It was so popular. The episode where Pebbles was born, it was as big as the I Love Lucy when Little Ricky was born. Wow. Yeah. Here's another thing about sort of relating to I Love Lucy's. I heard this somewhere. I didn't research it. I heard it. you love Lucy. Nah, she's all right. Fred and Wilma were the first married couple to share a bed, a marital bed. Mm. That's what I heard somewhere. Was it a bed or a bedrock? <laughs> I just don't like you sometimes. 
so the Flintstones, it cost $65,000 per episode. Oh, my God. Which meant it was the most expensive half hour on TV at the time. Yeah. It spawned a lot of primetime cartoon imitators, but none of them were as successful. Not even when the Jetsons came out in 1962. It was also Hanna-Barbera. Yeah. It only lasted one season in yeah. primetime. Really, the next primetime cartoon to make it as big as the Flintstones was The Simpsons in 1989. Wow, really? Yeah, nothing was as successful. And wow. The Simpsons uh, uh, blew the Flintstones <laughs> God, something had to. Finally, Fred had to be dethroned. (laughs) As much love as I have for Hanna-Barbera, because I really did grow up a lot watching a lot of Hanna-Barbera cartoons because they were were bought by... uh, Ted Turner and they were just mm-hmm. played on Cartoon Network before the uh, created original material which you're probably going to get to they just threw everything at you you know you had your Flintstones you had your Jetsons you had your Top Cat you had Huckleberry Hound you had too many contrasts <laughs> but the colors like I, I it's the so colors. the colors I find those cartoons to be so very Californian yeah yeah that's what I imagine everybody in pointy cars and just <laughs> like shapes when they get into <laughs> car accidents but they also had really neat like cartoon style too like mm-hmm. if you look at the character designs they're, they're very uh, loose and bold lines. and It does look really cool, which, uh, I mean, at watching it as a kid, it really, like I said, it kind of bored, like I got really bored of a yeah. lot of their stuff. But looking back on it, at my at the ripe old age I am now of 93 it just, it looks like something I would really like yeah. now but watching it as a kid it really bored me a lot of the stuff there was, even the Jetsons I'm yeah, made for the Jetsons you are made for the Jetsons and it really bored me when I was younger it surprised me they only lasted one season I, I think they moved to like Saturday morning oh, okay. or something but they were only in prime time for okay. one season and they also had uh, like really really I know it sounds stupid but memorable things that like it was 1993 yeah. and I'm watching a, <laughs> and I'm watching like memorable things <laughs> from like thank you from like the 50s I'm like oh this means something like I didn't know who Anne Margaret was but like <laughs> Anne Magrock when she came and sang that song to uh, Pebbles I'm like this means something this is important this is a beautiful moment in TV <laughs> and then let's not forget Eep Op Ork Ah Ah in the Jetsons this is like the best thing ever it means I love you oh, oh do but you? not you no uh, I love Lucy you know I, that Eep Ork Ooh Ah Ah <laughs> you almost got it right you know <laughs> you just said something very offensive in Jetson <laughs> But Top Cat, I think Top Cat might be my favorite really? of the of the comedy ones. It's just something about a bunch of cats living in an alleyway, just trying to hustle. And it's not even hustle because they're so hungry and they're stray cats. It's like they just love the adventure of it. Yeah, they're just doing it because you know they love. They're to. doing it to prove something to their cat parents. And they also had really fun adventure cartoons like Johnny Quest and Birdman, which was really neat. Batman and, Batman. and uh, Space Ghost, which like Space adults, Ghost, yeah. which Adult Swim would later turn into like satirical something. Yeah, something weird that it wouldn't get for years later. Yeah. It took me a long time to like accept that they're making fun of Birdman, which is a weird thing. <laughs> so by 1962, Hanna-Barbera, they had so many shows going, five shows, that they were making a total of 4,500 minutes of animation a year. They were called the General Motors of Animation. Yeah. yeah. Well, to compare, it took Disney three years to make 101 Dalmatians, which was 80 minutes long. One and, of my favorites. And Disney, Disney was not a fan I don't know if you read about this. One Disney executive once said about Hanna-Barbera, we don't even consider them competition. <laughs> to which Barbera responded, if Disney starts making cartoons for television on a regular schedule, he will either have to change his style completely or go broke. Then we'll see how much of a perfectionist he is. <laughs> <laughs> Hanna-Barbera, they didn't have enough money to look good. Yeah. So they focused on cartoons that were centered around witty dialogue. Yeah. So Hanna-Barbera did Yogi Bear, Scooby-Doo, right. Where Are You? Scooby-Doo is one of those cartoons that jumps the shark. I mean, over and over and over again. Yep. Did you ever watch Scooby-Doo and 
Friends? Uh, yeah, I'm sure I did. That's the one where like guest stars would come on like Don Knotts or <laughs> Batman and Robin or like the Globetrotters or Laurel and Hardy would come and the help. The Harlem Globetrotters? The Harlem Globetrotters no, would come and help, would. Them, and help them solve cases. <laughs> oh, God. I really like like early Hanna-Barbera for its style. I can't recall much of that witty dialogue that you brought up, but I know like... Josie and the Pussycats in Space <laughs> is definitely like okay. I'm not now watching that. that. Is witty. Captain Caveman. I did not like Jabberjaw. I did not like. I have an original Hair Bear Bunch. Oh, you do have original Todd Jabberjaw. Don't yeah. like Jabberjaw. I'm sorry. Well, there was a lot of Scooby Doo. I'll wash the cell. <laughs> uh, oh, oh, oh. McGilla Gorilla. I lo- uh, the Impossibles are really good too. They were like a Beatles ripoff, but they're also superheroes. <laughs> oh, the monkeys. <laughs> After Hanna Barbera, there was another proudly LA studio that came to prominence around this time. Uh huh. It was J. Ward Productions, mm-hmm. which is both of our favorites. Both are now, now it's my favorite. Yeah. Now, like, reviewing everything. Yeah, the, his stuff, the other stuff bored me as a kid, but I always really loved his stuff. So, Ward was a real estate guy that got dragged into the world of animation in 1948 when a childhood friend of his, Alexander Anderson, came to him for money to start a studio after being denied by his boss, Paul Terry of Terry Tunes. Mm-hmm. Terry was also his uncle. <laughs> they denied him. So, they started the first animated series to show on TV, Crusader Rabbit. In 1949, it was a mild success, and Anderson cashed out, and he left. He quit. He left Ward all on his own. Also, just to say about Crusader Rabbit, there's barely any animation in it. It's a lot of steals and close-ups and yeah. voiceovers. They didn't know. I mean, they didn't, they didn't know, know what they were doing. But it lasted, a, I don't want to say a long time, but it, it was like popular for a bit. Yeah, 80 years. Yeah. So Ward started making more cartoons after Anderson left. They never looked good, but they were really, really witty. Yeah. And none of them were huge successes until 1959. He debuted a show on ABC featuring two characters that had appeared on Crusader Rabbit, Rocky and his friends, starring Rocket J. Squirrel and Bullwinkle the Moose. Mm -hmm. It was a masterpiece of Cold War pop culture. It was really funny for any age. It had a lot of history jokes, a lot of old-time gags. Yeah. It was so successful in 1961, a spinoff was sold to NBC to be on primetime called The Bullwinkle Show that lasted until 1964. There was, like, no creative restrictions. They almost got away with anything, and they were just as much concentrated on humor as Termite Terrace was. Yeah. But it was in a different way. Smarter. It was... It was smarter because smarter. they couldn't animate. Don't as, roll your eyes. It was smarter. It was okay. You know, it was smarter. They didn't have madcap anarchy energy that yeah. they had because they weren't as good as animating. Yeah. So they relied mostly on dialogue, and everything was funny about it. like the voiceovers. It was. It's. I'm gonna make a weird comparison. It's like Arrested Development where you have so many levels of comedy hitting you at the same time. And there's just so many non sequiturs and it, and like the voiceovers are really funny and everything that all the like the, the dialogue and the relationships with Amber, it's all really, really funny. Mm-hmm. Peabody and Sherman's so funny. Everything's, fu- everything's everything. So funny. Every little thing that they would do. And it's fun because it was a bunch of different like it had the you see the Rocky and Bullwinkle thing at the end and then mm-hmm. it would come back. I mean at the beginning it would come back in the end and you'd have these little fractured fairy tales. Yeah, super chicken and stuff like uh, that. Deadly yeah. do right. Yeah, Right, George of the Jungle. George of the Jungle. George of the Jungle. Strong as it can be. Watch out for that tree. <laughs> Ward himself, he was a Harvard graduate. He mm-hmm. was a really funny guy. He toured the country in a van that he converted into a circus wagon with a calliope on top really? in order to get signatures to make Musylvania a real state. <laughs> and he got 50,000 signatures. Wow. On September 24th, 1961, he put up a statue of Rocky and Bullwinkle okay. in front of his studio at 8218 Sunset Boulevard, which was uh, just across from the Chateau Marmont. Marmont. 
and he closed down all but one lane on sunset during the ceremony and he put up a sign that said don't complain or we'll block this lane too (laughs) jane mansfield was part of the ceremony oh wow they encased her in (laughs) cement She's Bullwinkle. So right over there also, eventually the Dudley Do-Right Emporium opened up that sold a bunch of Jay Ward cartoon memorabilia. Yeah. The statue, you thought it was still there. The statue stayed up until last year, 20, oh. 2013. DreamWorks took it down and they like squirreled it away. Uh, Rocket Jay squirreled it away yeah. in their little lot there so only they can see it. So there was a big lawsuit between Ward and Anderson mm-hmm. as to who actually came up with Rocky and Bullwinkle. And in the end, they decided that it was Anderson. The courts decided. Really? He said it came to him in a dream where he was playing poker with a moose i don't see the connection the law at its best i know that there's no civil rights yet <laughs> who came up with the moose wait you said you had a dream that's a bit of a long card. what's your proof files <laughs> but did you dream it what do you have sketches with dates on them no thanks so ward also he created like we said he created george of the jungle yeah. and he did the captain crunch commercials oh that actually makes a lot of sense yeah yeah because he was so crunchy. Because I was hungry. Peabody and Sherman, I learned, was not animated here. It was actually animated in Mexico. Mexico? Yeah, and they would always get these memos because the production was really slow. And they'd be like, hey, how's, how's uh, that Sherman cartoon coming out? They're like, it's, it's getting there. <laughs> they'd always say, it's getting there. <laughs> they were all done in Mexico except for one which had to do with uh, Pancho Villa. And they had to get past the Mexican censors. So they did it in Hollywood. <laughs> okay, there's an episode, a really funny episode with uh, John Bowie, who was one of the guys who fought the Alamo. And he, like, the, the, he had a famous Bowie knife. Mm-hmm. First of all, they, they understand one of the most important things about animation was that the voices are so important. So mm-hmm. June Foray, his voices are so great. They had like real like pros. Yeah. <laughs> Not just Mel Blanc. <laughs> Not just some guy they took out of a, I don't know where Mel Blanc came from. Anyways, this one with John Bowie, where he's like owns a restaurant, like a steakhouse. And he, he pulls the stake out and he's going to cut it. So he gets a gun and starts shooting at it. <laughs> he gets a battle axe. They say, oh, have you, have you considered a knife? He's like, yeah, but I haven't thought about the coward's way out. He's like, no, that's not what I meant. What I thought about was cutting the... And so anyways, the descendants of John Bowie wrote a humorless letter about how they didn't appreciate how a dog God. and a little boy helped him find the knife. I didn't watch enough Rocky and Bullwinkle or Peabody and Sherman when I was a kid. Like I came across it, but it wasn't just, it wasn't on. So I didn't really I don't remember. It. I don't know where I was watching yeah. it, but I feel like I was always watching I don't Rocky know and Bullwinkle. I think you it was just that. going... The, theme song was just going on in my head over and over <laughs> they're also very like the optimism yeah they're very optimistic yeah it's not as like because there's no real vibe like you you know warner brother can be mean-spirited yeah, that's what i was gonna say there, there, there's always like a, a fall guy yeah 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 someone is gonna get hit with a, a skillet or something yeah but skillet. In, <laughs> hot skillet <laughs> someone's gonna be hot with a hot plate you know it's something creepy that they always do it's like someone will die and then there's like angel wings flying yeah. to the top and like oh they're dead like they're they're burning in hell they're, mm-hmm. they're there today. well they're going up they're going mm-hmm. up yeah. I'm not going down, and that's one of the weirder endings of uh, what's up. What's up for Doc? Which is like, a, I think it's a, they, everyone, it's well, rightly so a masterpiece. That. But at the end, Bugs dies, and then like they're carrying him away, and then mm-hmm. he like looks up like, "What do you expect? It's an opera. An opera what do you What do you expect to happen? I mean, it's an opera. He says something like that. Yeah. Good. So after some relative downtime in the '70s and '80s, cartoons had a renaissance in the '90s. In 1991, Nickelodeon, who also had a studio on Sunset Boulevard, they started making Nicktoons and introduced the world to Ren and Stimpy. Oh. In addition to Doug and the Rugrats, yeah. Rugrats made by Klasky Supo <laughs> at one two three eight North Highland Avenue. So right there in Highland, they have their characters painted. They have the mm-hmm. Aura monsters painted on the side, which I think is really cool. Yeah, Ren Stimpy though from John K. He was just looking back at like Bob Clampett and like he wanted to create that just anarchy that you'd see in like early Looney yeah, Tunes. Yeah, but with the weirdness and creepiness of the nineties. Yeah, <laughs> it, it has a little of the Jay Ward in it too, where it's it's funny dialogue and it just has these non sequiturs and it's. 
It's also, yeah, incredibly it's disturbing. Creepy. It's, it's dis- very disturbing. I love it. I think it's great. It's good. It's, it's good. good. Yeah, it's good. The same year as this, uh, during this renaissance, Disney's Beauty and the Beast, they became the first animated feature to be nominated for an Oscar. Also the same year, Hanna-Barbera was bought by Turner Broadcasting. And in 1992, Turner launched Cartoon Network, which is now located at 300 North 3rd Street in Burbank. Yeah. Cartoon Network was originally based around reruns of the old Hanna-Barbera's and Warner Brothers and MGM cartoons which Turner owned all of them. And that's why I just watched all of those as a kid. Yeah. Like at some point I must have went to school, but I don't remember that because I just so this much was school for me. <laughs> but by 1994, their focus shifted to creating their own cartoons mm-hmm. in the form of uh, Dexter's Lab, Johnny Bravo, Cow and Chicken, the Powerpuff Girls. All of these were made by Hanna-Barbera. Were they really? Yeah, it was Hanna-Barbera. One of the writers and animators for a lot of these shows was Seth MacFarlane. Oh, that's funny. I didn't know that. I remember they did a thing, if I remember correctly, where they were letting the viewers pick which of those cartoons they were going to like. They were all pilots. Yeah, because they started, yeah, they were like, it was like a show that had like these little. Yeah, bits, like five minute bits. Yeah. And Johnny Barbera was by far my favorite. But then (laughs) the surprise was, My dad would make me watch, he made me watch Johnny. Really? Why? He made me watch Johnny Bravo and the Animaniacs. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> did you ever watch Tiny Toons? Or did you care about Tiny Toons? Uh, I must have watched it. They didn't make much. No. Of I, I liked Animaniacs more. They did have like Matt. They, the were mad cap. they were Madcap. They were Madcap. They were Madcap. They finally let them out of that water tower. <laughs> yeah, and they let the viewers pick which one. But the surprise was that they, they were they're all going to become shows anyways. <laughs> Powerpuff Your Girls. Your votes don't matter. Powerpuff Girls had one of the best episodes of any cartoon where it's like it's a rainy day in um what, what's the town uh let's say smallsville but that's Small, something yeah smallville. they're all stuck inside there's no crime and they start pretending to be each other and it just becomes <laughs> this like trash talking session between them and i think one of them plays mojo jojo but it's so funny mojo jojo i haven't heard that name in a long time <laughs> i felt guilty watching that show because i was thinking oh I'm not a girl. <laughs> why do I have these feelings? For- <laughs> I have feelings just like a girl. <laughs> like I said, around the same time, Warner Brothers opened up their animation studio again, mm-hmm. and they started doing the Animaniacs. Yeah. After this, the next wave began in 2005. Nickelodeon premiered Avatar, The Last That's Airbender, right. which eventually led to Cartoon Network coming out with Adventure Time in 2010, and the whole crop of what's now on. Yeah. From what I hear, the future of cartoons may be taking the form of something like Cartoon Hangover. It's a YouTube station. They're headquartered in New York, but it accepts submissions from everywhere mm-hmm. all over the world. And the cartoons are actually drawn in Burbank. Okay. The guy who's running it is Fred Siebert, who is actually the guy that got Cartoon Network going. And oh, he, really? he revived Nickelodeon in the early 2000s. A lot of the currently big and up and coming animators that are doing stuff now, they came out of CalArts. Oh, like the, the guy right? who did Adventure Time, the guy who did Regular Show. Oh, right. They're, they're, they're from uh, Cal Arts. You don't have to worry about the past cartoons because Cartoon Networks is making new Tom and Jerry, new Bugs Bunny, new Scooby Doo, all the old stuff. I've they're also doing. seen um, stills. I haven't seen any of new uh, Disney stuff too, where they're reviving like Donald Duck and Goofy and, and like the Mickey. Sweet Life. Of- yeah, like Sweet Life of Jack and Cody. <laughs> Let's not leave out SpongeBob. It's <laughs> very, very funny. Like. Jay Ward funny but it's some of like the funniest anime like funniest styles of animation and the concept and everything and they also have like very optimistic also very, very positive op- show and also it can at times be very creepy it, it has that like weird California feel that I like a lot like there's a lot of like yeah. surf even though they're underwater they go to the beach which is really funny <laughs> Tom Kenny's voice is per like they, they understand saw that him in a parade. you told me that you saw and him Patrick. and Patrick at the parade and I saw the like characters dressed up as Spongebob 
and uh, Patrick. That's... I thought that was them. <laughs> You're not underwater. Get him a glass of water. Also, another really, really great cartoon that I like is The Marvel's Misadventures of Flapjack from Thurp von Orman. Another really great optimistic SpongeBob-like character. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's really great. I love Flapjack. Flapjack's really funny. Yeah, I like pancakes too. So <laughs> I, I have... <laughs> is it too early for pancakes? And now I just have uh, some interesting things that didn't really fit in before. Daffy Duck was based on a duck that lived in the pond across from Tex Avery's high school. Mm-hmm. Turner owns Warner Brothers and DC, and he used to own Six Flags, so that's why all the Warner characters oh. and Batman and Superman are there. We were wondering that. Yeah, we were wondering that. I still do, I can't explain why Snoopy and the gang are at Knott's Not, Berry Farm. No. They must have gotten in some serious trouble with the Schultz, jelly people. Schultz owes not so much money. He just owes them every he, everything he's ever had. He's like owes to John Knott's or whatever his name is. Don Knott's. Don Knott's. Don Knott's Berry Farm. <laughs> well, hey. Chuck Jones, mm. he also wrote and directed How the Grinch Stole Christmas. With our favorite Boris Karloff in it. Was Boris Karloff in that? He does the voice. I've never seen the, How the Grinch Stole Christmas you because mean? I don't know what that is. <laughs> the title didn't make sense to me, so <laughs> I just never watched it. What's this? <clears throat> Boris Karloff, another dream team. Chuck Jones is involved in Dr. Seuss and Boris Karloff. The Frankenstein that never was. Tex Avery, mm-hmm. later on, he did the Raid commercials. Oh, did he really? I yeah, he that. did those. That's in, why I love them so much. Yeah. I do love Raid commercials. In 1992, like you were saying, What's Opera Doc? It was added into the National Film Registry as among the most culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant films of our time. I think like three other Warner cartoons have been added since then. Last year, TV Guy listed the top 10 cartoons of all time. Simpsons was at number one, then the Flintstones, Looney Tunes, Peanuts, which I thought was weird. They're just like specials. Yeah, yeah, it's not like a regular aired thing. So then there was Scooby-Doo, Rocky and Bullwinkle, Batman, the animated series, SpongeBob, Family Guy, and South Park. That was the top 10. Something that was interesting was that all the primetime cartoons that were successful were starring humans and not animals. So people, we oh, could handle, oh, you know, see, like everything's you animal. We could handle animals on Saturday morning, but we didn't want it in our <laughs> prime time. <laughs> Something that I was reading about was that the cartooning process had to be so mechanized and turned into such a production line because it was the only way, there was so much work. It was the only way to get things done on time and on budget. But this led to a lot of monotony and boredom among the animators and even among the viewers, which kind of explains why I felt bored by a lot. Of, yeah. Like a lot of it was just repetitive things. Yeah. And I got kind of bored by some of it. And you were just, like, I know I did, was watch so much at one sitting that yeah. you're like, this is like, I get it. Like yeah. Bugs and, and uh, Daffy don't get along. <laughs> I wonder what it's like to live outside. <laughs> the sun's there. I don't want to go. It's kind of incredible how quickly cartoons evolve. Like yeah. how quickly they got really good. Quicker than any other like form of art. You look at the first Looney Tune and then you look at what they did just 10 years later and yeah. it's so much of a difference. And then you look at what's being done today with like CGI and in video games, which are pretty much still animation. Like it's a huge leap from what they yeah. were doing. Yeah. Disney was doing slow stuff that was really pacing itself and being patient, showing off how beautiful everything was while Tex Avery the same year was bashing animals against the wall for humor. Like yeah. even at the same time, they were evolving at, at at different rates, but they all sort of competition brought it all forward. So if anyone else wants to start a Los Angeles history podcast, <laughs> please don't do it. We can't handle competition. We'll fold. You, you probably have more friends than us and they'll leave reviews for you. I didn't realize how much animation, how much the big animation was all done. Like I knew that Golden Age happened, but I didn't realize. I mean, I know Cartoon Network's here, but God, it's all in L.A. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it is weird. When we started doing this, I was like, is this really... LA history yeah it is it is yeah <laughs> and now that we've 
like I don't know not everybody I don't now I sound pompous and stupid but like I follow certain animators around now like I'm like oh I really like his stuff <laughs> right, like anything yeah. he does like anything John K does like I'll watch at this point even though I'm missing like large chunks after Ren and Stimpy <laughs> I, I'm so interested we all in were missing large chunks after Ren and Stimpy <laughs> <laughs> there's a, a cartoon I would I, I even have trouble calling it a cartoon it's an animated show <laughs> on Adult Swim called Super Jail so Tex Avery it's so like manic and psychotic it's so funny it's like someone's like how can we up the ante on itchy and scratchy <laughs> and it's so great now that part of the program that people tune out for mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you can go to our uh, blog that follows our podcast it's lameekly.tumblr.com we are now on facebook like us on oh, Facebook, right. look for LA Meekly. We're also on Twitter at LA Meekly. Mm-hmm. Email la.meekly at gmail.com. We also, are, we also are now hosted by Libsyn. Yeah, Hopefully. so we know who's listening. Yeah. We get pictures sent of everybody who clicks on these. Mm, and we know when you stop listening to mm-hmm. six minutes in. Yeah, we yeah. know. Yeah, we know. Uh, that's generous. So that's being very generous. Hopefully, the episodes will be uploaded without any uh, hassle. Uh, not not by not my part. Likely. Yeah, mostly not, by not someone likely. else's someone else's hassle. We're still on iTunes. Abdi abdi abdi. Leave a review. <laughs> so that's been yet another month of La Meekly suing Mr. Magoo since 2013. Yeah. Nah. That's me. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have his pants. <laughs> Bring me the head of my room. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're done. That's all, folks. Mm-hmm.